Is there a library or bookstore around here where I could get books on rock and roll? Rock and roll. Story's true. This is a story that needs to be told. These rock and rollers want something to read. Hello, everybody. Welcome to another edition of the Rock and Roll Librarian. With me today, as always, is Shelly Sorensen from the San Francisco Public Library. Shelly, how you doing? I'm fine. How are you? I'm doing pretty good. Got a lot of things going on. Uh, we've got an interview with uh, Jay Stevens uh, tomorrow, a guest star in our latest episode in the main narrative, episode nine, the medium, the message, the music. Uh, Jay wrote the book Storming Heaven, LSD and the American Dream. And we're going to talk to him in depth about that tomorrow. That sounds really interesting. I think it's going to be pretty cool. So uh, we're excited about that. But today uh, we are going to talk about one of your books that you've spent some time reading. And uh, this is a little bit different for us. So why don't you tell us where we're going? Okay. The book is called Under the Big Black Sun, A Personal History of L.A. Punk. And the authors are John Doe and the other author, the co-writer and editor is Tom DeSavia, who's a music journalist and also credited are Friends. Oh, friends. So uh, this is a kind of an essay type of book, uh, multiple people writing to it, right? Yes. Uh, it's uh, John Doe of the band X and Tom DeSavia have collected some essays and reminiscences from people, including musicians, artists, music writers that were involved in the L.A. punk scene in the late 70s and put them together in a book. Well, I can't think of anybody better to kind of head this thing than John Doe of X. Great band. Love those guys. So you know what? Let's introduce everybody to a little of X. This is Los Angeles. guys love that song i remember it very well so what do you think of x i love x i love them more now after i've read the book and you know of course i did my librarian like research and listened to a lot of music while i was reading the book and they are great i love yeah. x yeah uh john doe xine cervanka uh dj Bonebreak, and of course billy zoom on guitar so let's see um multiple essays um probably not a specific timeline there's no sort of beginning or end very similar to kind of like the david bowie book we did except uh, uh this is a very specific period of time i would assume right it's a shorter period of time but more characters so i thought it was a, a really ingenious way to tell a story by getting the variety of point of views from different people that were there, covering a short period of time. But as I was reading all the different essays, the same characters kind of uh, peek their heads around the corners and appear over and over again. So you get a 
a really good sense of what was important during that time, what was happening, how it felt, how it felt for different people from different, uh, you know, uh, stances. And uh, well, uh, what I remember is that the, it was kind of a small community. Uh, you know, you were either in the punk scene and you were kind of an outsider, if that was the case, or, you know, you, you listen to 38 Special or, you know, uh, the, 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 the arena rock bands of the time. Right. Um, I think they referred to themselves as the, not the original 200, but something like that. There were, you know, a core group of, of 200, mostly young people, of course, that uh, lived in or around Hollywood and came together in an almost kind of communal fashion. Somebody likened it to the Paris salons of, you know, different artists getting together and sharing ideas. But with Mickey's Big Mouth and bags and bags of McDonald's hamburgers. <laughs> <laughs> so, you know, it was definitely a low Drive rent. Through, of a, lo- a low it's rent LA. version. Right. That's right. 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 Um, yeah. So it was it really, I, I really enjoyed reading it. And I think it, you know, it told a really good story from, from like I said, different points of view. So we're obviously in the, the mid 70s. Um, um, you know, uh, punk kind of uh, starts in about 75, 76. Uh, you know, New York is, uh, is the germination point uh, uh, then London I think and then LA comes uh, tertiary does that sound about right yeah it's pretty much agreed though you know everybody in the book has a little bit of a different spin on it but that 1977 was a lot of pivotal kinds of things happened that year that really brought it together into a kind of a, a scene. Yeah, like the movie Star Wars. I'm sure that had everything to do with it, right? <laughs> I, that's not what I read. So one one thing that happened during that year was the, you know, the Sex Pistols had their first album in, in London, but but actually more importantly than that was The Damned oh. made the first, uh, the first actual, released the first actual punk album on Stiff Records, which was produced by Nick Lowe, who also produced Elvis Costello. So all these, everything kind of touches, you know, the other at some point in time in music, I suppose. So they, so, so, if I remember right, they they come over and tour in '77. Yeah, and that was that was really important to the scene that the Damned actually came to LA and played in Hollywood, and so the whole group of people that were some of whom were already there and were already kind of noodling around, you know, went and saw The Damned, Slash Magazine, which uh, wrote a lot, was a kind of a homegrown magazine and wrote yeah, a lot about all the that. bands mm-hmm. and all mm-hmm. the shows. And then this uh, club called The Mask, which was basically a basement series of rooms underneath the Pussycat, the Pussycat Theater on Hollywood <laughs> Boulevard. Oh, yeah, I know opened. that place. Yeah. <laughs> And that opened. Never been there. Never been there. Just know it. No, I'm sure you've seen it driving by. And also um, Joan Jett, who was part of, you know, who was an L.A. girl, uh, went to the U.K. with the Runaways and came yeah. back sporting, you know, telling all about the punk scene in London and, you know, with new clothes on that reflected what punks, you know, what the kind of the punk look was in, in London. Good old so, Joni. Glad she's finally getting her due. Yeah. Good. Well, let's see. The dance. New Rose was uh, the first single, I believe it's the first punk single ever to be put out, Stiff Records, and as you said, produced by Nick Lowe. So let's play a little of that. Okay.
Okay, I can see where that's going to change some people's perspective. Hitting into town in 1977. So, and then I think like Axe, uh, the Germs, the Blasters, or several others that kind of come around around that moment. I, I think out of that, you know, X is like the seminal LA punk band. Uh, God, I, I remember reading about them uh, just about every week from Robert Hilburn uh, in the Los Angeles Times. He absolutely loved those guys, loved their albums. I, I never did get a chance to see them, unfortunately. I saw them. You did? Oh, well, tell me about that. Well, you know, I lived in Los Angeles when I was a teenager, and I went away to college in 1975, so I wasn't in L.A. when the punk scene started. But um, in 1979, I made a trip to L.A. with my boyfriend, and we uh, went with my little sister, who was in high school, and going to all the clubs in Hollywood and seeing all all of these bands. And I got to see X that time, and they were... Do you remember which club it was? I don't remember which club it was. Mm-hmm. Too much beer, I guess. <laughs> um, so too much Mickey's Big Mouth. <laughs> too much Mickey's Big Mouth. Yeah. So that was that was really cool. But it was already getting a little um, a little kind of too rough At by that, that point. point. Yeah. yeah. In 1977, when it all started out, it was an open scene. You know, a lot of people from different parts of LA coming in and very welcoming. You know, it was a core group, but it was welcoming of any oddball or misfit that yeah, wanted to come in and make. Yeah, yeah, that's, that's where usually where the best rock and roll yeah. comes from. And that's how X kind of started out. They really loved um, American roots music and old time oh. rock and roll. Yeah, and, you can hear that in the yeah, in the, in and the, especially the vocals between uh, Xine Cervenka and uh, John Doe. And they have such unique vocals together. Uh, I think yeah. that really makes their sound. They I, have this. I, I could always hear the the country folky influences. Uh, with those guys but uh you know given a little bit of a, a punch with the the punk sound yeah that's definitely the way they both had it i mean both john doe and xine you know they still have x they also formed a band later called the knitters that was more yeah. roots based yeah, yeah. but yeah. anyway so um they they weren't from la uh they i think started out in Baltimore, then Brooklyn, and then he came west. Um, and Exine was from Florida. And they met at a poetry workshop in Venice. And he was, you know, they had an instant connection. They later became romantically involved and got married. But at the time, you know, it was just a total soulmate type of thing. Yeah. Um, amongst artists and then a Billy, mind meld as we say yeah and Billy Zoom had, had been had a rockabilly band so they came to yeah, he was a little bit older if I remember right is that yeah I don't know for sure but they came to LA with a band to Hollywood with a with a rockabilly sound that they wanted to do basically they had in common that they loved old rock and roll and they hated jamming and they were really <laughs> uh, you know kind of bucking up against that very you know that more contemplative arena rock where you know the songs went on and on and on and people thought chopping broccoli too much of chopping broccoli <laughs> chopping broccoli yeah Wait, what's that from again Saturday Night Live, okay where they make fun of yeah. arena rock and uh so so they just fit in you know right away and had you know and played all the clubs and the mask and Xene was really into styles and art and fashion and she's got a great voice and they do these in, you know I think great really harmonies. really interesting yes, harmonies that interesting. You, you can't yeah. really mistake 
that no, that's John and Maxine. Yeah, one of a kind. Yeah. Definitely. Yeah. Very original. He tells a funny story about getting pulled over by the LAPD because the LAPD hated the punks and they would just pull them over or come into the clubs and just beat them up and arrest them and Hey, it's uh, the LAPD. Yeah, that's right. <laughs> and so, you know, they said, what have, you been, what have you been doing tonight? And he said, well, playing music. What kind of music? Old stuff like Chuck Berry, Carl Perkins, and Gene Vincent. What? What's that? What? You know, they didn't know about that, that kind of music. So he said, uh, you know, like Bebop, Alula. And they said, oh, yeah, why don't you sing some? So he's standing there on the Hollywood street singing Bebop Alula, and they put him on the uh, loudspeaker mic on the through the black and white bullhorn, you know, standing, <laughs> having him sing the song out on the yeah, street. Yeah. That was like, I think, the only positive uh, encounter he may have had with the LAPD. Well, I'm sure he got out of a ticket. Yes, let's, I think so. Let's play a little more of X. We both love them uh, from their first album. Johnny Hit and Run Pauline. You bought a sterilized hypone to shoot a sex machine drug. It got 24 hours. We could do a whole segment, a whole show on uh, on X uh, themselves, and, and maybe in the future we might. Good. I'm sure we'll get into them with uh, deeper digs uh, after we get past the uh, into the 80s and uh, towards the end of our main narrative. The punk scene is, uh, you know, kind of one of the last gasps of uh, true rock and roll trying to be relevant and uh, from the street and uh, and have credibility. So Right. Um, all right. So uh, uh, other things are going on uh, at that time. Uh, like you said, it was like the, the 200. Right. One of those bands I know is the Germs. Darby Crash and, uh, of course, Pat Smear uh, comes from that. And those of you who don't know, Pat Smear is uh, a giant rock star now hanging out with Dave Grohl and the Foo Fighters. Uh, very influential in uh, in the scene in, in L.A. I know some people uh, like the Germs, some people don't. Uh, but tell us a little bit about Darby and, and kind of what went on there. I know a lot of people talked about it in the uh, in the book. Yeah, he, he was quite a character and he was, you know, had a lot of uh, special kinds of uh, chemistry and just a... A, a somebody, real guy who lived on the edge. Yeah, somebody you couldn't miss. Uh, and the first album of The Germs was produced by Joan Jett. That's actually, right. who yeah, was a, yeah, a regular yeah. down there. Mm-hmm. And uh, yeah, people talk about Darby and, and also about about the fact that his death by overdose on Intentional heroin, overdose. Yeah, was, was really the um, one of the events that marked kind of the end of this, hal- the halcyon days of that, you know, kind of a few year period where, like I said, the punk scene was very open and very artistic. And this, this was one of the very seminal events that kind of marked the end of that 
first generation of punk. Yeah, it didn't last too long. I guess 77, if you want to begin there with Mask, uh, the club. By 81, um, 82, it was it was definitely on to something else. Um, but th- there was a moment. I, I was a little too young to go and hang out at the clubs at the time. Um, uh, I knew about it, you know, read about it, but uh, didn't really experience a lot of that myself, and except the after effects and seeing some of the bands afterwards, like the Blasters and, uh, you know, the Go-Go's and things like that. But the Germs, if I remember right, with Darby, uh, there was the band, several people filtered in and out. In fact, I think Belinda Carlisle was in the Germs at one time. Yeah, uh, briefly. And and yeah, Joan Jett produced their uh, their their one and only album. Yeah. Uh, and then they broke up. Darby went to England, came back uh, kind of uh, all excited. They put a show together. If I remember right, the beginning of December, oh, I want to say December 3rd, they play this show at the Whiskey, if I remember. And then he kills himself on, uh, on December 7th, uh, leaves a note, uh, intentional suicide by heroin, and uh, had assumed he would be an international star by doing so, except the fact that on December 8th, 1980, John Lennon is killed uh, oh, bad in New York. Yeah. And th- th- that, there go the headlines. So... <laughs> Um, you know, so I guess you're, you're not in control as you might assume. So, but but let's play a little of the germs. Uh, I'll, I'll throw lexicon devil out so everybody can get a flavor of them. Okay. (laughs) Not your favorite. I know. I was telling you, uh, I was thinking, I was really trying to cram for my, uh, my podcast and, you know, be and have an open mind and listen to as much of this music as I could. And I just, I I, I got, I'm down with the band, but as soon as he starts singing, I just have to turn it off. So uh, yeah. he is an acquired taste, yeah. uh, but purely a punk. I mean, this guy just embodied the I don't give a fuck yeah. uh, completely. So, all right, here it is. Looks <laughs> a gun devil. Okay, Darby Crash, Pat Smear, uh, and Germs. Right. Um, all right, so where does that uh, leave us um, here? So we're, we're now in the late 70s, maybe very early 80s. Uh, what, what's going on in the book? Well, I, I just uh, um, in relation to him overdosing on heroin, there, there's definitely a lot of uh, people meant, you know, talk about how there was this line uh, about, you know, there were people that did a lot of, you know, everybody did drugs and drank and everything, but, you know, that there was that line about heroin. The code for punk was cocaine was bourgeois, weed was for hippies. And so the kind of drug You're limiting of the, your options here. Yeah. The drug of the day was uh, crushing and snorting uppers oh, and yes. drinking lots of beer. There was never... Everyone had a short but meaningful relationship with Mickey's big mouth. <laughs> That's what John Doe said. And uh, I like that. A meaningful <laughs> that relationship with Mi- Mi- yes. Mickey's big mouth. Uh, I've which had I, my share. I've drunk some, yeah. yeah. Um, 
and uh so there was that you know where there was the beer and the and the uppers and then there was this line heroin sneaked its way in and people started dying so that was you know that's what heroin does and, yeah, uh, hard to control an opiate like that. It doesn't that. seem like heroin really goes with the punk thing in a way because you, you need, I mean, it seems to me like amphetamine goes more with that kind of energy of the punk, you know, live shows and everything. And heroin might be a little bit too kind of Well, you can't be up all the time. <laughs> right, that's true. Only, only for that uh, hour or so when you're on stage. Hell yeah. Uh, yeah, yeah, but, yeah. And you can always, as we saw in, uh, in the last uh, episode of Vinyl, just right. give someone a little uh, methamphetamine and you can, can kind of shock them out of the heroin overdose. <laughs> <laughs> Remember I, that I, scene? I, yeah, I don't know if that really works, but sure. Yeah, yeah, I know. I was like, that doesn't seem like a good idea. <laughs> no, no. <laughs> anyway, one of the other bands, you know, one of the things that I thought was so interesting about this book, I mean, I, it was a real education for me because I thought I knew, oh yeah, punk, you know, you just kind of yeah. like punk is punk. But the variety of types of music that came out of that scene, it was, it was like not just, oh, you have to come here and you have to play this certain style of music. Music. All the people that came from different areas of L.A. Well, not they, early on. Later, later it does kind of get very right. more, uh, more homeo, testosterone. Uh, yeah. <laughs> yeah. No, I, I meant to say homogeneous is what I, not homeo, homo, homogeneous. 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 Oh, God. <laughs> anyway, so, but, you know, there was different bands that had different inspirations and different roots in their music. But yeah. they when yeah. they came to Hollywood, that was played kind of through the prism of punk. And so one of the interesting bands that played during that time quite a bit that you wouldn't think of as being part of a punk scene was the Blasters. They were very, very uh, yeah. rockabilly yes. roots, American roots music, Dave Alvin, Phil Alvin, and I can't remember all the other band members, but a great tight band. And they just went into the punk clubs and just played fast and loud and played their really well put together music, um, you know, in front of this crowd and, you know, the crowd loved them and they were very well respected and a, a kind of a major player like X during that time. Yeah, I, uh, I I got to see those guys and uh, they were fun. They did always remind me of uh, like a good, tight 50s rock band, more so than a punk band. Right. They were a cool, cool band. And, and a very, know, very good live show. Oh, gosh. Yeah. 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 So, and I think Dave Alvin has got a, a a chapter in the book, right? He does, yeah. He said they they opened for Queen in 1980. I think I saw that. Uh, it's amazing. And he said after 17, because they, they weren't like Queen in any way. No, so, no, you know, that, weren't. and then they're playing arenas, you know, sports arenas, which yeah. wasn't their usual thing. So he said, you know, after 17,000 angry fans in sports arenas, the punk crowd didn't seem so bad. <laughs> there were just 500 <laughs> Or so spitting at them and throwing garbage and right. stuff. And Alvin, uh, Dave Alvin has a, a great, uh, another story about his um, guitar, his um, Fender Mustang that he's had for a decades. Years, right. Having scar, battle scars all over it because he had to hold it up in front of his face so that he wouldn't catch a beer bottle you know, in the, in the head. Yeah. <laughs> oh, yeah. Yeah, That's they're too, great. They're, uh, I, I, I really, audience should never do things. Yeah, like, I, I've really I've been enjoying, that. enjoying listening to them. Yeah. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Blasters are cool. All right. Well, let's play a little bit. What do you uh, What do you think we should play? Um, I like 
I like the song She Ain't Got the Beat. I like a lot of them, but that that's a fun song. She Ain't Got the Beat. All right. Here's She Ain't Got the Beat. You know, just listen to that song, She Ain't Got the Beat. It's so easy to get into the blasters. I mean, they're just so original rock and roll. Yeah. Uh, I mean, if you know anything about rock and roll, you're going to dig them. So that's cool. Yeah. All right. So there's a couple other people you you wanted to get to uh, that wrote chapters in this book. Uh, who 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 are we going to get to next? Well, there were so many to choose from, but one of yeah. them uh, one of them that wrote an interesting chapter is uh, somebody named Chris D from uh, who is a lead singer for the Flesh Eaters. So ah, this is totally yes. like okay, we had the Blasters, yes. now we have the Flesh Eaters. So we're <laughs> kind of ping ponging back and forth. But he came to Hollywood, and he was actually a poet and a and a writer, and he wrote he contributed to Slash Magazine from the very very early days of that magazine. Oh, and I'm um, sure I read some of his stuff then yeah mm-hmm. he um he wrote an, uh, a chapter kind of looking into this idea of what what is punk what really is punk and saying Ooh, that it, that's a that's a big uh, it is a big, big it's a big question we think we know but we don't uh, you know? right punk meant different things to different people and to him it meant doing your art music and all of the things that people were doing that were creative exactly by what feels right to you and that's what he felt like kind of embodied the feeling around in in Hollywood during that time and there so because- authenticity authenticity and kind of playing from the gut and not from the head. Right. And um, because there were mostly young young people that were into this uh, music, that meant that there, there was a lot of unfocused anger, angst, fear, you know, coming through this this prism of punk. So, you know, it's kind of... Because those are the feelings that you have when you're that's uh, right, that when age. That's right, when you're 18, 19, yeah. 20. Right. And the so, world, you're facing the world for the first time. Yeah, and yeah. he has a very distinctive voice. Um, I I kind of hated it at first, but I I start to grow on me. No, oh. so we're gonna si- we're gonna listen to this song, "A Minute to Pray, A Second to Die." All right, there you have it. Let's listen to it. Very cool. I don't remember much of the Fleshies. I mean, remember the name. I don't think I ever saw them, that's for sure. Uh, But uh, that was a pretty cool song. Yeah, I think so too. All right. Where are we going from here? 
Well, one of the things that came out in the book was that, um, you know, like I said, this was kind of an open, open to all different oddballs, misfits and such, and all different kinds of music. And yeah, so, usually new art movements kind of do yeah. grab uh, and the nonconformists and uh, those that are on the outskirts of society right. gravitate and, if they have any talent uh, into whatever the new form is. Yeah, they've been pushed, pushed out of, uh, you know, that's the well, yeah, because there's gatekeepers and all the other forms right. and you're, you're, you know, you're going to have to comply to a, a, a stringent set of rules. And, yeah. and here there are no rules. That's right. And John, John Doe even said, you know, he, he came from Brooklyn and he said, you know, he saw all these bands in the mid seventies, you know, uh, Patti Smith and um, now I'm blanking on what other bands he saw, but, you know, but, you know, it was really cool. And it's like, Ramones, oh, well, maybe this is really great music, but I don't have an, in, you know, there's no way to get into it. Mm-hmm. There's no, it's all locked down. That's right. the, the phrase he used. It was locked down. So, so one of the things that happened was um, Hollywood being kind of geographically kind of close to East LA and the Latino communities over in East LA, but so far apart culturally. But nevertheless, the Latino um, bands Ooh, separate but equal. Yep, they started noticing that oh, there's these clubs in Hollywood that are kind of accepting of, as John Doe said, if we, you know, anybody that wanted to come in and get have garbage thrown at them and spit at well, who are we to say that it's not okay you can't do it, right? because you have brown skin you oh, know yeah. and so and at the same time also uh, women were really um, having an opportunity to to play music and to be in bands and to write music because it was so open they didn't they didn't have to be controlled by men we'll get into that a little bit more with the go-go's but uh, yeah there was a, and Los Lobos comes out of this yes, too and, I think Los Lobos is mentioned fleetingly throughout this book, but I think of, they gained fame a little bit later, but yeah. And they were already really an, an established, actually folk Mexican band yep. in yep. in East Los Angeles. And funny story, when they first came to Hollywood and played in front of a punk band, they were, you know, they were invited by another punk, uh, another Latino punk band to come and do that. And they had so much stuff thrown at them uh, <laughs> because they had their acoustic, traditional Mexican instruments with them and right. they're playing acoustic Mexican folk music <laughs> and, and so they've quickly realized like they couldn't do that the next time they came they brought the electric guitars and I'm sure that really pushed them toward a different you know they still do their Mexican folk music but they have you know this rock and roll thing going on oh, too yes, they do. and they became incredibly successful I love Los Lobos another band that came out of that scene that didn't become famous or you know really go much of anywhere, but I that I really liked when I listened to them was called the Brat, hmm. and uh, they have a lead singer named Teresa Covarrubias. Uh, Sid and Ru- Rudy Medina were uh, brothers that played in the band, and they started out playing at backyard parties and art collectives in East LA, and blended styles and songs, and their their look was really cool. They were often referred to as the Latino version of Blondie. 
Oh, but they never really caught fire. But I th- I think they were a really on listen that they were a really good band. And John and uh, Exine went to see them play in East uh, Los Angeles at one point in some you know backyard birthday party and was really grooving on their sound. And, and somebody, one of the uncles or grandfathers, expressed his appreciation of the music by firing a pistol in the air. So <laughs> that was the the exit. Right, they were yeah. like so I've excited. I've heard many of those. <laughs> yeah, they're like, wow, this. Is is really cool. We're in East LA. All right. Uh, so Teresa Covarrubias has a, a beautiful voice, I think. And she really, she um, wrote a chapter in this book too, talking about rights for Latino um, musicians and how the Latinos were kept down in LA. And so it's kind of a, a social yeah. justice kind of band. Yeah. And, I've never uh, heard of them. You're, you're introducing me to somebody new and I look forward to getting a chance to listen to some more of their music. So yeah. you got a song that we can I throw do. at everybody? I, I, yeah, I like this song. It's called The Wolf. Aha, here's The Wolf. Yeah, that, that was a very cool song. Um, I hope I can find more of their music out on the interwebs. Yeah, it's a little difficult to find, but there's a there are a few. She did have a great sounding voice. Yeah. All right. Okay. So now you mentioned them a little bit earlier, and I know we're going to get to the to the Go Go's now because that's you know out of all these bands, they go on to the largest fame and fortune. Everybody in the audience knows uh, them. But what I don't think a lot of people know is that they did start off kind of as a as a punk band. They were deep into the scene and they were respected, right? They were. I know it's funny when you listen to even their first album. It's very very pop. Yes. But they were hanging around and. Hollywood and playing with different people and, you know, refining their sound for two or three years before that first album came out. The, um, what's the name of the first album? Uh, uh, Beauty and the Beat. Beauty and the Beat. Yeah. And so they were a perennial punk opening act since 1978. And then Beauty and the Beat came out in 81. So and they two, became overnight sensations uh, at yeah, that point. Yeah, amazing. Yeah. They, two of the women in the band wrote chapters, each separate chapters in this book. Jane Weedlin, who's the rhythm guitar player and, and co-writes most of the music. And Charlotte Caffey, who is either or the lead guitar player and the piano player. She was actually classically trained she went to music oh she went to art school and she studied me she got a ba in music and yeah piano. Charlotte, charlotte did yes yeah and she when she got to hollywood and met jane and you know lived and they all lived at the canterbury apartment house which was like a, a huge dormitory a funky older you know typical la apartment building and tons of these musicians lived there and kind of collaborated they had a re- rehearsal space in the basement but uh, charlotte Kathy remembers, you know, learning to play the bass so that she could be in one of one of the bands and having Belinda Carlisle walk up to her dressed in a hefty bag and purple hair 
<laughs> and saying, asking if she played lead guitar. And she lied and said yes, because Belinda's next question was if she wanted to be in an all-girl band. Of course she did. So she would do whatever she needed to do. And you the know, rest I'm, is history. That's right. I'm going to learn that. I'm going to learn that lead guitar if that's the last thing I do. And she, you know, a lot of, a lot of these bands learn to play music in the club, you know, in the clubs and as they went. And some, some people came, of course, with already knowing music, how to play music. So they, um, I did not know this, that they were the first and only all female band that both wrote their own songs and played their own instruments to top the Billboard charts. And that's still true today? That's still true. I mean, as of the writing of this book. (laughs) And uh, yeah. So what do you want to play from the Go-Go's? You know, we could play uh, the beat. What's it called? (laughs) The name of that one. We got, got the, the beat. We got the beat, or our lips are sealed. Those are kind of their top. Their those most, are the big ones. The big ones. But I like this one. It's called "How Much More." Okay, how much more? Yeah, without doubt, the uh, largest act to come out of this scene, uh, the the Go-Go's, and, and then, of course, Belinda Carlisle had uh, a solo career. Jane Wheedlin had a solo career. I met Charlotte Caffey a couple of times. Uh, she was uh, involved with uh, a producer that did some stuff for one of my bands back in the 80s. Uh, Bobby Donati and uh, um, nice woman and uh, the Go-Go's were were great at that time. Yeah, very, very pop influenced sound. Yeah, they they followed more on the new wave side. They were fun at K-Rock, KROQ in uh, in Los Angeles, the radio station there. uh, They were promoted uh, quite a lot. Well, I have new respect for them. I think they kind of went a little bit past me because it's kind of, oh, that's so kind of bubblegummy. But I, I do, I have new respect for them now. Yeah. All right. So I think the scene begins to fall apart here in about 81, 82. Uh, in fact, if I remember right, uh, Penelope Spheris is uh, first the decline of Western civilization comes out about that time. Uh, and you, uh, you know, you can begin to kind of see the cracks occurring. Uh, you know, these sort of art movements like this only last so long. And, uh, you know, a couple of bands get plucked out and, uh, you know, find their way to stardom. Uh, I think uh, X got a little bit, the Blasters got a little bit, and obviously the Go-Go's got, uh, got quite a bit. But then, uh, things began to turn. Tell us a little bit about that. Yeah, there's def- definitely a, a shared uh, impression that around, you know, 80, 81, that the testosterone levels got <laughs> a lot higher in, uh, in these clubs yeah. and on these, you know, in these scenes, uh, both on stage and in the, in the audience. People kind of noticed, uh, teenagers and young people noticed this was going on in Hollywood and wanted, you know, it's like, yeah, oh, this it got, is- the, the news got out to suburbia. And, That's right. Uh, and we started to come in and see these shows. Yep. The jocks and the surfers. Right. Angry, 
violent. I don't know what they had to be so angry about, but that's another question. <laughs> oh, they just wanted to get their rocks off in <laughs> a different did. way and in the pit. Yeah. And, you know, like you said, um, some, some of the original bands, you know, they either became really famous or kind of famous and went on tour and they weren't, you know, like X, they weren't, they didn't become hugely famous, but they did go on tour and they weren't in LA as much as they used to be and at these clubs. So that changed the scene. The Go-Go's went on and, you know, the, the blasters and, and such like you mentioned. And um, there, you know, were really... Also, you know, some people died from heroin overdose and the punks, the punk scene kind of became co-opted by a rougher crowd, changed it and pushed musicians and artists out. And and yet, very interestingly, and one of the reasons I really like this book is because it's showing, it's basically non-judgmentally showing all these different points of view. And one of the chapters in the book is by somebody named Jack Grisham, who was with TSOL, who very, I think, very eloquently describes the feeling of a young man, what he got out of going into these clubs and kind of and being violent and what he got out of being on stage and, you know, kind of being very rough and, and violent, you know, kind of having a violence tinged, you know, act. And not that I really understand because I don't feel that way, but I think he, he did a really good job of um, just describing what it feels like from the inside and what this, you know, feels like for a young man to go in there and really, you know, just like the pressure, the pressure is taken off and you can express everything that you've been feeling that you've been putting a lid on for a while. I had many fun hours in the, uh, in the pits of the day and, uh, throwing my elbows around and, uh, doing the stomp. Uh, there is a bit of a release there. I, I've never been kind of a alpha aggressive kind of guy, but, uh, at the same time, there's fun in that. And I certainly, uh, could appreciate it. Yeah. Yeah. I guess that's one of the, re- you know, it's the, uh, the gender gap here. <laughs> <laughs> well, let's play a little of DSOL. Go through Yeah, a little testosterone definitely in uh, TSOL's <laughs> song Code Blue there. So, uh, And I know there's another band that's, uh, you know, uh, maybe even more notorious for just attracting that hardcore male audience, and that's Black Flag. Yeah, it actually, um, the vocalist for Black Flag, Henry, Henry Rollins, well, they, yeah. he was the longest serving, serving vocalist. vocalist. <laughs> they had a couple others before that. Yeah. He, he joined as a vocalist in, um, in, in 1981, and they were considered the fierce, brilliant kings of hardcore. They were respected, but they were definitely hardcore. And, you know, Henry Rollins, uh, like you said, went on to... 
other... fortune and fame uh, in uh, in other respects. He's a well-known poet and writer and now a TV host and even political as, uh, over over the years. So, so, yeah, he's come out of that a little bit. But, uh, yeah. but yeah, they were they were hardcore yeah. for us. And their uh, audience, too. Yeah. I, I can't remember if I said this yet, but Dave Alvin's chapter, Dave Alvin of the Blasters, um, tells about how his uh, his Fender Mustang guitar is a is a testament and bears battle scars to the times that they opened for Black Flag. You can imagine, and yeah. how he had to lift the guitar up in front of his face to deflect. You know, one time it's just like a split second that he missed getting bonked in the in the face with a with very a well pitched uh, beer Mickey's bottle. Big Mouth. Yes. <laughs> All right. Well, hey, if you don't know Black Flag, I'm gonna play. I love this song, man. I loved this song when I was a kid. TV Party. And there's the L.A. scene all in one song. (laughs) (laughs) All right. So finish this up here. Let's say 77 to probably 82. I think by then, 82, 83, I think uh, things began to change. In fact, you start to get uh, the the hair metal bands begin to take over the strip. And I remember that really well because I had to play with all of them. Uh, um, yeah, not the best time, but well, that's another book and another story. Uh, we'll get into that one day, definitely. But uh, what what else? Uh, what do you want to finish up with uh, on the book? Do you recommend it? I do. I really recommend it. I mean, like I said, it was a total kind of explosion of uh, light bulbs going on over my head. I had no idea all this was happening in Hollywood, even though, like I said, my yeah, the younger... New York scene is well known. The, L- the London scene is extremely yeah. well known, and yeah, the L.A. scene was. Uh, was a scene as well. I think, you know, even though my my baby sister was involved in this um, scene, I was already away at college, so I didn't really talk to her much about Did she have safety it. pins in her nose? No, she actually, it's funny because she said she was kind of, um, you know, commented on when she was uh, waiting for, in the line for clubs, uh, that she wasn't, you know, she didn't go for the fashion. She just liked the music. Right. And so, you know, it was kind of like this kind of catty girl thing, you know, it was like, you know, you know look like a Punk, you know, she just looked like, you know, West Side, you know, high school girl. But, you know, even though she was into that, you know, I, I didn't really kind of delve into what was going on. So I this was really really fun to read and I really liked the changes in the tone you know that when you got, we went to a new chapter it was a whole different person telling the story and then you know because I didn't really know much about it or a lot of the names oh yeah there's they're mentioning the flesh eaters again or they're mentioning Henry Rollins again it, from a you know a whole different person's perspective so I, I just liked that way of storytelling I thought it was really effective and um, love John Doe I saw him recently at the chapel in San Francisco and 
and he's you know he's still making music and making really good music and I saw him in in Xene and I think Dave Alvin is part of the Knitters they were at Hardly yeah, Strictly they, Bluegrass was, yeah so um they're really you know getting more back to roots rock she looked like a deranged housewife when I saw her a couple <laughs> of years ago she's so funny she's beautiful and tiny and has this great big voice but she was wearing an apron or something <laughs> I just remember seeing her flailing around on stage but a lot of energy and that woman has yeah it, it was a small scene uh and there there was there were some very significant bands that came out of it. there's a lot of bands that we didn't talk about today too um you know agent orange comes to mind uh, circle jerks is another one that's uh, that i remember seeing back in the day so well i'm glad you liked the book it was a lot of fun i'm gonna play one more song on our way out from a band that i actually got to jump up and uh, steal the microphone away from leaving <laughs> uh and sing a couple of verses for taking your life in your hands there. Uh, i did because I ended up getting thrown off and it was not fun. So anyway, <laughs> I'm going to play Fears, Leavings, uh, I Don't Care About You. And everybody, keep up the rocking. of social injustice? Oxfam America works with people in more than 90 countries to save lives, develop long-term solutions to poverty, and campaign for social change. And we do it with the help of our friends in the music world. The Beatles were Oxfam supporters back in the day. So were the Stones. And through the years, musicians and music fans have helped Oxfam push hard to work for a just world without poverty. Folks like Radiohead, Coldplay, Pearl Jam, DJ Shadow, and many, many more have encouraged their fans to join the effort. You can too. Go to OxfamAmerica.org to learn how you can help. The Rock and Roll Archaeology Podcast is produced and hosted by Christian Swain. Written by Richard Evans and Christian Swain. Playlists can be found at iTunes, Google Play, and Spotify. Purchase these great and important tracks. All songs, clips, and references can be found on our show notes. Please visit rnrap.com for more information.